0: not actually going to finish Hebrews 13 this morning, and some of you I know are disappointed in that, but we're getting close, I promise you. We've got some beautiful stuff to deal with today. Guys, at the very core of our faith is the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, right at the very core of our faith. You see, Scripture teaches us, and our lives teach us, experience teaches us things about us. We are the kind of people who are locked into ourselves, and we're locked even into our own sin. And we are, as Scripture puts it, we are naturally enemies with God. But because of that, and the love and the power of God, He has made relationship with Him possible. And it all happens because of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now, the original readers of this book, the book is written to Hebrew believers. So they had grown up and they'd been brought up in the Jewish Old Testament system. And so now they are learning this kind of lesson over and over in really interesting and unique ways throughout this book. And we've walked through so much of that. But they were raised in a religious system of constant sacrifices For their sins. They had to, or the patriarch and matriarch of the family had to go to the temple on a regular basis and offer sacrifices for their sins and go home and sin some more and then come back and offer sacrifices. This was a perpetual system for them. The requirement of obeying the Old Testament laws, all of these things were necessary for them to do in order for a relationship with God to be right. The writer of Hebrews is saying over and over again, now, Because of Jesus and what he has done, they have received and we have received grace. And they're now out of the system, the necessary system of temple sacrifices and the hardcore legalism that they were raised in. And as far as Hebrews is concerned, you don't let this kind of good news go. What we have received in the grace of Jesus Christ is something that we are intended to hang on to until the very end. And so in this particular section of the final chapter of this book, Hebrews will remind us of what saves us and then what we should do about it. Some of the big ideas this morning that will kind of help control our thoughts in this passage today, first is this, don't be drawn away by false teaching a theme throughout Hebrews that he comes back to again today. He says, in fact, that what you have learned in Jesus Christ is actually good for you. He uses the language of medicine, of restoration. What you've learned about Jesus Christ is actually medicine that heals the human soul. You've learned this good news from your spiritual leaders, so continue to listen to them and imitate their lives as they follow Jesus Christ. And grace... Grace makes all the difference in every one of our lives. So hang on to that and don't be drawn away by false teaching. And the text just puts it about as clearly as it possibly could. Jesus shed His blood to bring us close to God. There is no other sacrifice that accomplished this. And again, the book of Hebrews has dealt with that. And the Old Testament system, they knew that. But we've learned that none of those sacrifices finish that job. There's no amount of good works that I can muster or that we can do in order to finish that job. It has to happen by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus died on the cross. He rose again from the grave. And when we put our trust in him, we are saved. This is good news, guys. How many of you have heard that before? We, we should hear it again and again and again that Jesus shed his blood to bring us close to God. And then the right response to that is worship. Actually, it's a life of worship and witness. Everything about us becomes a testimony to what God has done, to who Jesus is, to what it means for us to follow Jesus Christ in this life. So we will declare his glory and his worth until he comes, and we will learn how to let the rest of this world in on this amazing grace. Well, let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. Let's read verses 7, 8, and 9 together. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them remember your spiritual leaders this is where we finished last time but I want to pick this thought back up because it leads into this little three-verse section it leads us through another set of ideas Part of what struck me about this passage, remember your spiritual leaders. Keep your eyes on the things that they originally taught you, by which you were saved, and pay attention to the outcome of their lives. And and as they follow Christ, as they live a life of faith, I want you to watch them, to follow them, and to imitate their lives of faith as well. It is critically important, That the local body of believers has spiritual mothers and fathers within it. It is incredibly important that the spiritual influence upon a local church comes from the spiritual mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers of the church. We live in a celebrity culture, right? And so a lot of our lives is influenced by people we don't know, but we see all the time, or we're told that they're important all the time, or we see them on social media all of the time, and they become influencers inside of our lives. In fact, sometimes that's just the word that's used to describe people like this in our culture. They are influencers. And it's not just a general celebrity culture. We live inside of a Christian celebrity culture as well. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good Christian authors out there, and you should read good Christian authors. There are good Christians who are on YouTube and who preach and they teach, and they do that really well. And if you find those people, go ahead and listen to those people as well, right? Now, we need to ignore the weirdos who are out there because there's a lot of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as soon as that sermon is done on YouTube, it's done and their lives are gone. Part of the beauty and the power of a local body of believers to which we are connected We sit next to people on Sunday mornings. We know their names. We know that they're sick when they're not here. We know what kinds of seasons they're walking through in their lives is that we actually have that physical, intimate, spiritual, emotional, relational connection to people. Remember your leaders. Remember the things that they've taught you and don't swerve from those things. And there are people in your lives who are Christians, who they're on the same path that you are, but they're a few steps ahead of you. And he says, I want you to watch their way of life. Pay attention to their outcome so that as they follow Jesus Christ and every time their lives reflect Jesus, every time their lives remind you of Jesus, I want you to follow them. See, this is part of the power of being just part of a local church. So remember your leaders. And then it's interesting, the next verse in this chapter that's by and large a chapter of do this, don't forget to do this, do this, don't forget to do this. We just get this great little verse thrown in the middle of this chapter. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. By the way, I bet you all of you just memorized that verse of Scripture. So Scripture memorization is not hard. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we are reminded at this point of the unchanging nature of Jesus and the unchanging nature of the truth of who he is. The reminder here is that our doctrine is stable. Our doctrine about Jesus Christ is stable. The truth is about who he is his virgin birth, his sinless life, his teachings, his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, and him as soon-and-coming king. These truths will never change. Our doctrine is stable. And so in that context of make sure you're paying attention to your spiritual leaders and remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The next thing he says is, and just please Don't be led astray by weird and strange things that people say about Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are a lot of really weird and strange teachings about Jesus floating around in our world today. A lot of strange teachings, a lot of unbiblical teaching about what it means to be a Christian to claim the name of Jesus Christ. What then should my life look like? What then should I believe about the moral structure of my life, who God is and his authority in my life? There are a lot of unbiblical teachings about those things floating around the world today. And so it was with the early church, and they faced a lot of false teaching. In the very earliest of the epistles, we listen to Paul and Peter and John, the writer of Hebrews, they're beginning to deal with these false teachings that are already cropping up. The early church calls all kinds of international theological councils and they pull in all of the leaders of churches and elders and bishops and they gather them together because some false teaching has become really popular. So now what we have to do is we have to gather and clarify things about Jesus so that we are sure about the truth, we're clear about the truth, and then we go back to where we were and we begin to teach the truth about Jesus Christ. You see, the early churches faced this as well. It was such a big deal that the epistles deal with it a lot. One of the last things that the Apostle Paul writes, he writes to a young pastor, Timothy. And here's part of what he tells Timothy, this pastor. I love this passage of Scripture. We actually use part of this when we ordain brand new ministers in the assemblies of God. Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready all the time with the Word of God. Reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As a pastor, I can tell you the phrase that is the hardest is the complete patience phrase here. Not you people, the other people, right? For the time is coming when people will not endure. They just will get tired of listening to sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers and subscribe to their YouTube channels to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. This is what people will do, Timothy. And so as a minister of the gospel, here's what I need you to do. I need you to preach the word. I need you to keep the course. I need you to do everything you know how to do to keep the congregation under your care clear on who Jesus is. And this is serious stuff to the apostle Paul. How does he begin this thought? I charge you, Timothy. In the name of of Jesus Christ, the soon-and-coming king and the judge of the living and the dead. This is who you stand before, Christian. I want you to stay close to the word of God. And he says, look, people are going to have itching ears. Now, what do you do when something itches? You scratch it. (laughs) I love this image. Their ears are going to itch. They're going to want to hear some strange new teaching, some new thing about Jesus Christ that no one has discovered before. And I guarantee you there are teachers out there who are willing to tell you that those strange things about Jesus really are true. And so we begin scratching that itch, and we walk away from the truths of Jesus. And we listen to false teaching. When Paul says something very similar to the Ephesians, He says, look, here's what we do. We teach and we encourage sound doctrine amongst each other so that nobody is carried away by the waves of false doctrine that keep on showing up. The waves come in and they keep dragging people out, but we're going to stay with Jesus Christ. So their world faced a lot of these false teachings. And guys, our world faces a lot of these false teachings. And there are just actually false teachings, but... One of the ways in which false teaching shows up in our culture about Jesus Christ has to do with the moral structure of our culture. Guys, in a lot of ways, our culture has decided that there are no objective truths about religion and morality. There are no fixed points about how to behave or who God is or who Jesus is and what he is like. So in the end, the most important thing is you and me. My personal preferences and how I feel about things and what I think about things. So instead of the existence of God becoming the reality maker for us, what I feel has become the reality maker for us, the morality maker for us. We've talked about this before, but a couple of years ago, the Oxford Dictionary, they choose the word of the year at the end of every year, and the word that they chose was post-truth because it exemplifies our Western culture. Now, post-truth is the condition where people use their feelings to decide what is true instead of using facts and reason and argument to decide what is true. So we live in a post-truth world. So into this world... Of hardcore religious and moral relativism, here's what what Jesus is reduced to. One of the primary roles that Jesus now plays in our culture is the final stamp of approval for whatever I want to do. This is how false teaching about Jesus shows up. And it shows up in all kinds of ways, as the final stamp of approval for whatever I want. What is your point of view on immigration or taxation? Well, good luck, right? Well, good to you, because Jesus believes exactly what you believe as well. What's your belief on health care? What's your position on health care? Well, luckily, Jesus believes exactly what you believe as well. How do you want to behave? How do you want to express yourself sexually? Well, good thing, Jesus says all of that is okay. Stamp of approval. You want to run for president? you got to make sure everybody knows that Jesus would vote for you if Jesus... We're here. He's been reduced to the final stamp of approval for whatever I want to do or say. And, guys, that's a mudslide and a rainstorm. That's just going to go downhill really, really fast. Instead of that, we have to make sure that we know that Jesus is a fixed point. He is the fixed point. The same yesterday and today and forever the truths about Jesus are fixed points now the way the human heart works no matter how hard we work to try to ignore or get rid of some form of objective truth the human heart is constantly struggling looking for something to hang on to it's constantly looking for some kind of objective thing to hold on to no matter what we say or what we do So, guys, culture changes, and the conditions in which the church lives change, but the things of Jesus Christ don't. So here's this quick thought in these three verses. Make sure you're paying attention to your spiritual leaders, and watch their lives, because Jesus Christ never changes. So don't ever be caught up in false teaching. The next phrase is the phrase that grabbed me this week. I thought something else was going to grab me, but this is the phrase that grabbed me this week and it just didn't let me go. And, And it's my prayer, it's literally been my prayer this week that this phrase, this thought, would sink somewhere into our hearts and minds in such a way that it just won't let us go. After saying all of that, what does the writer of Hebrews decide is the critical thing that we have to hang on to? The very next phrase that he uses is this, it is good For our hearts to be strengthened by grace. It is good for you to be strengthened by grace. Instead of anything and everything else, what's best for my soul is grace. When we talk about grace biblically, what are we talking about? So grace is a free gift given to us by God in salvation It's not something I deserve, but it's something that's given to me by God. So that's true because it is also a gift of God's presence and power as we walk through this life learning to live like Jesus Christ. Grace is not a gift that is given to us once and then we're done with grace and we can move on with our lives until Jesus comes or I die. Grace is the kind of thing that burns brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter inside of the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. The philosopher and author Dallas Willard likes to say, a saint doesn't burn less grace, they burn more grace. The more I know about who Jesus is and what he's done for me, the more I am aware of who I am, the more I know I need grace. What God has given me, it is good for my heart. To be strengthened by grace. And guys, it's, it's true that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, just is grace. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that we live, is not achieve and then you're accepted. That's not good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. You are accepted Now. Live into the life that Jesus has given you. The pastor, Tim Kellers, puts it like this. He says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. At the same time, This is the gospel. This is good news. This is grace, guys. So the writer of Hebrews says it's good for our hearts to learn this truth and stick to this truth and not give up on this truth. The alternative to the grace of Jesus Christ is always bad news. I don't care what form it comes in. (laughs) It comes in false Christian doctrine in faith. It comes in other religions. It comes in atheism. It comes in secular progressivism. And every alternative to the grace of Jesus Christ is the same, and it's always bad news. And it is this. You need to behave in a certain way and live up to our standards, and then we will accept you. That's the other message. That's the message we're accustomed to, That's the the message we slide into, but that's not the grace of Jesus Christ. For the original readers of this text, that system of behavior and acceptance and achievement, it's the law and it's the sacrificial system... In fact, in one of those very first international ecumenical councils, the Apostle Peter and a bunch of the other apostles and disciples and leaders gathered together, and Peter was talking about the Old Testament law, and he said it was a burden that we nor our parents could bear. We can't put it on people because it's not the gospel, it's not grace. For us, we face this in all kinds of ways. It's a Christianity of sin management. Do and don't do, do and don't do, do and don't do And then you're going to be okay And that just falls apart so fast In our world, our forms of political advocacy And virtue signaling have become forms of legalism You have to believe the right things Say the right things, vote for the right people Like the right social media posts God help you if you like the wrong social media post, right? Behave, 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 behave And then we will accept you All of it, all of it is an unbearable burden. But the grace of God is amazing. It's amazing. Now, this altar where grace is served up is different from the altar where legalism was offered up. And that's what the author does here. This is how the author moves through this concept. So let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 10. Here's the rest of what he says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle have no right to eat. They've stuck with that system. We've received the grace of Jesus Christ. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Here's another one of these moments in the book of Hebrews where we realize something. The original readers read this and they go, oh, that makes perfect sense. You and I read this and we go, I have no idea what we're talking about. All of these sacrifices... The book has said this, right? Day after day, year after year, all these sacrifices, they never finish the work of sacrifice. But... Here's the image. Here's what they're talking about. These these sacrifices are burned outside of the city walls. So inside of the temple, when a family would bring in their sacrifice, the priests would take it, and they would kill the animal on the altar. They'd sacrifice the animal on the altar. Some of those cuts of meat would go to the Levites, because that's how the Levites would actually eat dinner. But then the rest of that carcass now is taken outside of the city walls, and it's burned, and that's where that carcass is gotten rid of. And it's not just one carcass. carcass. after carcass after carcass over and over and over. So all of these animals, once they're sacrificed, the carcass is taken out and they're burned. Why? Because these animals have become unclean. In the act of sacrifice, they've become unclean. Here's the lesson that Old Testament sacrifice is teaching God's people over and over and over. I am a sinner and the punishment for my sin is death. And when I bring the sacrifice into the temple... The punishment for my sin gets placed on this animal, and this animal dies in my place. And so now because this animal has, so to speak, received or now carries the weight of my sin, the animal is now unclean. So the animal can't be in the temple. It can't be in the city. It has to be dragged outside of the city, and that's where it's gotten rid of. Who went outside of the city? To bear my sin and die in my place, just as the carcass of these sin-ridden animals are taken out of the city gates because they are unclean. Jesus, and the Gospel of John actually says, as he carried his cross, he walked out of the city gate and up onto that hill, and that's where Jesus is sacrificed, and that's where he bears. All our sin. And that's where he makes the final sacrifice for every one of us. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Here's part of how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to this. I love this verse. For our sake, God made Jesus... To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This exchange, this crazy, amazing exchange that is made in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What he takes is my brokenness and my sin and my inability and my rebellion. That's what he takes. And what he gives in its place is the righteousness of God. What he gives in the place of death is life. What he gives in the place of darkness is light. This is the exchange that Jesus makes upon the cross. He is the only sinless, sinless man. and He was forced outside the city, killed on the cross. Offering the once for all sacrifice that forgives the sins of his people. So Hebrews just says he did this to sanctify his people by his blood. That word sanctify, again, a word we don't use all the time, but is common to New Testament Scripture. It just means to make holy, to make us gods, to make us right before God again. And the only way for that to happen is through the sacrifice. You see, guys, this is not just grace. It is the cost of grace. What it cost to give this grace to you and me was the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and His shed blood. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, they talk about... What is accomplished in this? I love this. For in Him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was fully and completely God upon that cross. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus makes peace between you and Him. Because of the blood of the cross. But it's more than that. The text says he has done this with everything. The shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross is what will, in the end, put everything right before God. This is the power. This is the breadth. This is the strength of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Guys, we need saving. We need the power of God to fix what sin has broken and what we lack the power to put back together again. So God, in His love and in His power, came to earth, born as a baby, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again to eternal life. And when I learned my own insurmountable limitations... When I come to terms with the truth of all of these things and submit myself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I am saved. I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So then the writer says, here's how we respond to that. That's a big deal. That's literally a life-changing truth. So what do I do with that? Where do I go with this truth? So, this is what the writer says beginning in verse 13. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share in what you have for such sacrifices. These kinds of sacrifices are what are pleasing to God. Therefore, and I love how the writer continues this image, Jesus has gone outside the camp, and that's where he was sacrificed, and that's where his tomb was, was outside of the city walls. And if that's where Jesus went to save this soul at the very least, what this soul needs to do is go outside of the camp and be with Jesus. Let us go to Him. Let us pursue Him. Let us go where He is. And whatever it means for us, He bore reproach for me upon the cross. And what I'm willing to do is to bear a lot of comfort and ease for Him. <laughs> right? What I need to be willing to do is to bear reproach for Christ. I'm going to go to Him. I'm going to be with Him, and I'm going to follow Him. The original readers, as a matter of fact, were leaving what they knew as as comfort and as their culture and as, as what was normal for them. They were leaving their Judaism to follow Jesus Christ, and as we have learned through this book over and over, they were suffering for it. Am I now willing to live outside of the normal life demanded by modern secularism or religious universalism and bear whatever reproach I'm going to have to bear to follow Jesus Christ. Don't forget Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we're called to now as followers of this Jesus who has done this for us. And I like the next thought. Guys, it's going to be okay if we don't become the world's favorite people. It's going to be okay because we belong to another world. We're looking for another city. We've learned something about the cities, the, the structures and the systems of this world. We've learned something about them. Our eyes are on the structures and systems that God is building. That's what we look at as we walk through this life. We have what theologians call an eschatological vision. That just means that what we're learning to look at is the inevitable victory of Jesus Christ, and that's what we follow, and that's how we live, and that's what we bear witness to in this world. We heard this image before in Hebrews chapter eleven, verse ten. Hebrews 11 was talking about all that Abraham did by faith and Abraham left the, the, the culture and the place that he knew and he went to the place that he did not know because his eyes were on a city whose builder and maker was God. His eyes weren't on that city. His eyes weren't on this city. His eyes were on what God could do. And so this is the life now that Abraham leads. So guys, we walk in this life as people who are living according to the next life. We live inside of the kingdom of the world as people whose lives are shaped by the kingdom of God. And this is part of how we worship. This is part of how we bear witness. This is a lot of what it means for us to do God's good kind of work. These are the sacrifices God is asking for now. So that's the thought here. Let us, through Him, continually offer the sacrifice of worship that his name would always be on our lips, that we would do the kinds of things that he has called us to do. These are the sacrifices now. You see, those old animal sacrifices, you'd have to bring them in in order to fix what had been broken. You're asking for God to now forgive your sins again and again and again. And now the sacrifices are not like that. Sacrifices are now a matter of response to what God has done for us. So we worship, and in fact, we worship and we bear witness. And guys, once we've come to grips with what has been done for us in Jesus Christ, is there really any other rational response to this? than to worship Him, and that His name would be on our lips, and that His deeds would be in our hands and in our feet. And I love this. Can worship... Be ready on my lips. And it doesn't mean you have to have two or three of your favorite songs always ready to go, but maybe that's what you do. You just love singing these songs that you like, and that's how you worship. That's not what it necessarily means. It just means that what is ready. Uh, let's put it, let's think about it like this. What are you ready to say at the drop of a hat? Your guard is down, something happens, what comes out your mouth? Is it worship? <laughs> is it scripture? Is it thanksgiving? Is it praise? I can tell you, and Heather could tell you as well, these lips, that's not always the case, right? What if instead of that, there was something else that was inside of this soul? There was some other stew that was brewing inside of this heart so that when this mouth opens, what comes out is worship and praise and witness and the kingdom of God. His praise should always be in our lips. Guys, sin in me facilitates selfishness. But worship, corporate worship, the the body of Christ as we gather together, it facilitates worship. And so when we gather together, we work to create this atmosphere among the people of God so that we can express wonder and awe at who God is. So that we can take whatever it is that God has given us and wherever it is God has placed us, and learn how to make a big deal out of God instead of making a big deal out of myself. This is worship and awe. That we become ready to talk about Jesus. That we are unashamed of Jesus. That we are comfortable with the truths about Jesus. And that we're ready to talk to people in ways in the ways that make sense to us about how we love Jesus. Now, I know there are a lot of evangelism tools out there that tell you these are the questions, these are the steps, these are the things that you say. And I know those things can be useful at certain times, but in my experience, what is most useful over time is that when I get to talk to somebody about how Jesus makes sense to me, how Jesus has changed this life, how Jesus has done something fabulous inside of this life, And because it is personal to me, it comes out in a much different way. We're doing God's kind of good in this world because we've been moved by the grace of God. And I'm just going to give you one last word to think of as we finish these thoughts. What if we knew all of this just as wonder? The wonder of who God is. Knowing God in such a way that our lives are drawn up to Him in awe and magnificence. And that as our lives are drawn up to Him, our lives learn how to turn out to our neighbor and express the love of God to those who are around us. Guys, two of the antonyms to the word wonder are disinterest and disregard. <laughs> what, which set of vocabulary best explains my daily life and interaction with God. Wonder or disinterest and disregard. But this kind of praise when we've seen what the grace of Jesus Christ has done for us and we've come to terms with this. This kind of praise is not coerced. It's not just, well, pastor told me to put in a worship CD this morning so that's what I'm going to do when I get home. It's self-propelled. It's going to start coming out of me. It's going to start pouring out of my lips. What it means to worship God. So guys, we find this wonder within Jesus Christ. We find it in the the mystery and awe of who He is. We find it in the glory and the grandeur of God. And we find wonder, guys, when you put together these astonishing truths, when we put together my need for a Savior, the absolute, perfect, transcendent glory of God, and then the death of of Jesus Christ upon a cross. What comes out of that is worship, awe, and wonder. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Let's pray.